Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to this evening's talk. Um, my name is Abby Innes. I teach the uh, political economy of Central Europe here at the European Institute, and it gives me very great pleasure indeed to welcome the Slovak Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign and European Affairs, you're a busy man, uh, Mr. Miroslav Lajcek. Um, and Mr. Lajcek was, of course, also Slovak Foreign Minister in the previous FITSO administration in Slovakia, and these posts follow many distinguished years of diplomatic service and indeed clear expertise in the Western Balkans, where he has served both as a Slovak ambassador uh, in several states and also in the role of European Union Special Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina through 2007 to 2009. The Minister's talk this evening is part of the LSE European Institute's Perspective on Europe series. And for those of you who indulge in Twitter, there is a Twitter hashtag for this event, which is hash LSE Slovakia, all one word. And for the next 20 to 25 minutes, Mr. Lajcak is going to talk about the EU on a crossroad and the future of our European project, a view from Central Europe, after which we'll have some questions. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll speak from over there, I think. Good evening. Thank you for coming to this lecture. I hope it's not going to be boring. I and thank you for the introduction. I'm, I don't know why it happens, but every time people refer to my past diplomatic experience, they mention Bosnia, but they never mention Montenegro, which was much more challenging for me, actually, uh, because in Bosnia I was running an institution, but in uh, Montenegro all I had was Javier Solana's instruction, go there and make sure it's legitimate and objective for the <laughs> referendum. Yes. And asking who should win? No, it's up to you. It's, I want this process not to be questioned af afterwards. So it's good to be back at the LSE. I was here some four years ago in my then capacity of the high representative and we, we discussed Bosnia and Herzegovina. It was interesting. I'm visiting London in my current national capacity. The formal reason for this visit is to celebrate 20 years since Slovakia was born and 20 years since we established diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom and to look back and be proud of what we have achieved together and it's good that today Slovakia and the UK are not discussing primarily our bilateral relations but we are discussing what we can do together to make the world a better place. It sounds like cliche but it's not. And in all my meetings including in my partner, Minister William Haig, the major part of our discussion was dedicated to the Euro European Union, and you are not surprised. This is an issue that is both the internal politics and foreign policy, and this is the issue that keeps us very bu busy and very preoccupied, and the UK has contributed to this uh, busyness with the uh, recent speech of the Prime Minister Cameron. So I came here to offer you views on the European Union as, as seen not only from Slovakia but from Central Europe because uh, the fact is that uh, due to our historical experience the views on these issues and on many other issues are very much shared by the Slovaks and Czechs and Poles and the Hungarians and, and the others. So, uh, And of course we are discussing all these issues very actively and therefore 
I'm not a, I don't have a formal mandate to speak on behalf of the Visegrad Four, but I can tell you and you can trust me that uh, I'm bringing sort of Central European view. For us, in our part of the world that has experienced both fascism and communism, the values of freedom and democracy are not just slogans, but they, are, they really matter. And uh, believe me that the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia was not about common market, but it's, it was about becoming part of the free and democratic world. And this is why when we were given the perspective to become part of the European Union, which is exactly built on these values, this was a very strong encouragement for us, and this uh, made us enthusiastic, and this helped uh, us to be successful in our transition. For us, this is not an accomplished process. For us, this is not a deal done. Uh, we know that uh, you have to fight for democracy, you have to protect democracy, particularly when we go are going through difficult times, as it is the case now. So, uh, therefore, for us, European Union is a, an embodiment of democracy and freedom, and we want it to stay this way. Plus, we, st we still see new challenges. The first one, of course, not to let it go again just to make sure that European Union stays as, a, as attractive as it always was, that it's dynamic, it's successful, and we have to do our part. And secondly, to offer this European perspective to those who deserve it and to those who qualify for it. So I'm referring first and foremost now to the countries of the Western Balkans, of course. Now, European Union is not going through the easiest of times, as we all know. We have many forms of crisis, economic crisis, currency crisis, financial crisis. But here I would like to say that for us, as we see it, it's mostly the crisis of confidence. We lost the confidence of markets. We lost the confidence of our citizens. They don't trust us that we have the ability to cope with the challenges we are facing. So we need to regain the confidence in order to be able to deal with all the aspects of this crisis. And uh, to do so, there is no a perfect standalone solution that can be found overnight. It is a process. It's a process consisting on, of a number of steps, and we have to be sure that we are progressing in the right direction. Is it the case now or not? There is no clear answer. I believe it is. I do, I do believe that we have already adopted a number of measures that are leading us in the right direction. European... Uh, stability mechanism, the fiscal compact, the compact for growth and jobs, all these <coughs> elements are here already. In the, we are working to get us closer to the banking union. We are speaking about the fiscal union, about the economic union, about political union. So we, we, we have the direction, we go in, and we, we go in that direction. What is important here is not the number of pieces of legislation we are adopting, but how consistent and how serious are we going to be in implementing them? Because we are not, European Union has not been born three years ago when the crisis started. And we have, we have had the, the Stability and Growth Pact before, but this has been violated more than 60 times with no consequences. Or actually, the consequence which we are facing now is the crisis we have to deal with now. So we must show we are serious in accepting and implementing the rules we have adopted. Without this, we will have no chance to be successful. So we are good at setting rules for the others, but we must also uh, respect the rules that we have set for ourselves. In this regard, I would say that the multiannual financial framework, the new budget for the 
for the next seven years that was adopted last week was a step in a good direction because we showed that we can, we have the ability to make uh, decisions. We even have the ability to, to deliver these decisions in time. The decisions that go right way because uh, these are the decisions that are su supposed to start growth, which is w what we all need. And we can even break taboos because uh, for the first time we went down with our, our budget and we succeeded doing so because there was a will and there was an ability to, to reach a consensus. If we want to make European Union stronger, we have to understand that we have to start our work at home. Everything is interconnected in Europe. There are no isolated problems. Uh, no matter whether you are in the Eurozone or outside of the, of the Eurozone, whether you have opt-ins and opt-outs, everything we do affects the others. So, and therefore, logically, if we want to find solutions for the, the overall European Union, we have to find them in our discussion among all the member states. There is no individual solution to our common pro problems. European Union is our own project. It has not been imposed upon us, and therefore all the solutions, again, depend on us. So it makes no sense to cry or to ask ourselves rhetorically whether Europe, Euro will survive, whether the European Union will survive. It's our project. If we want it to survive, it will survive. We have all the instruments, we have all the political will, and there is no obstacle to us other than uh, within us. So, but of course, all these solutions have to be a result of a proper discussion. There must be no blackmail, there must be no my way or highway. It really has to be a, a very serious engagement in a serious discussion. We have a number of examples of this discussion being, uh, going on. Van Rompuy's four, uh, pil four pillars Barroso's blueprint, UK's uh, balance of competencies review, or in Slovakia we are relaunching the project of national convention, which is a nationwide uh, platform for thorough discussion about European Union and about all the challenges it's facing. So it's good that we are discussing all this, because as I said, it is a very complex process, and, and we have to make sure that we are no, not throwing out the baby together with the bathwater. That's, that's really important. The process must be based on facts and not on, on prejudices or on myth. And here I want to recall the speech that my dear friend, Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski, delivered in this great country a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure that you are familiar with this speech. I'm not going to repeat what he said, but I think he has done a very good job in dismissing a number of myths about the European Union that exist here and in other places. There is no doubt that the European Union needs more competitiveness, and not only in terms of economy, but also in terms of security and in terms of foreign policy. We are facing challenges of the 21st century and we have to be equipped for that. Uh, we have to find a proper balance between austerity and growth. And it's as simple as to square the circle, but there is no other way. We have to do it. We have to be able to redirect our European money, European funds, so that we help those countries and those regions that need it most, and that, again, would stimulate growth rather than to, to be just spent and eaten. And we definitely need to use the full, full potential of the European single market, which is here, but we are just not using it to the full extent. The signal about adopting our budget is a positive one, and it should help us and to calm down the situation, to help us, to get us to understand where we are, uh, what is at our disposal, and to focus on other issues. 
And at the same time, we must not forget that the European Union has the ambition, and rightly so, to be a global player. We have a global role, we have a global responsibility. And here, I'm asking myself quite often, and I'm being asked quite often whenever I'm traveling outside of the European Union, why is Europe so much obsessed and preoccupied with itself? Why are, are we looking so much inwards rather than trying to assess our role and our, our responsibility globally? Why we don't pay enough attention to, to the world beyond the borders of the European Union? So uh, I think it's a proper question, which also needs to be asked more, more frequently, and probably we all need to travel uh, outside of the EU more often. We need to bring the European Union closer to our citizens. And that's the only thing we can do if we want Europe to be successful. And for this, we need more subsidiarity, more delegation of power. It should work both ways. More Europe whenever we know that it's good that Europe is responsible for certain fu functions. But whenever we know that it's the member state who can cope easily with the issues and, and, and good quality, then we should give the powers back to the member states. So more Europe does not mean more regulations. More Europe means stronger Europe. And we need more democratic legitimacy. And by saying so, I'm not questioning the, uh, the legitimate credentials of our elected leaders who are making or adopting decisions at the European Council, nor am I questioning the democratic mandate of the European Parliament. But I do believe that we are doing a lousy job in communicating European agenda to our citizens. We don't do this enough, and we don't do this in a way that people can understand it. Our leaders meet, they spend hours and hours without sleeping to, to arrive at a certain result, and no one has un the ability to understand what has been agreed, because it has been turned into a document which is impossible to comprehend. So we really need, we, we will not succeed we will, uh, if our citizens don't understand what we do and why we do. And this is what we call democratic legitimacy. So our, our public simply must be informed, must know what we, where are we heading, and we have to have the feedback from our citizens that they agree with what we do. Sometimes we tend to go too far in certain directions and, and uh, uh, taking the risk of, of losing our citizens. So as I said, we need more Europe, but we also need a better Europe. And as I said, more Europe does not mean uh, more regulations, but it means stronger Europe. We need more accountability, accountability at the EU level, at the national level, and also at the, at the corporate level, because the banks have done their share of responsibilities for the problems we are facing right now. We need more responsibility in the management of public finances. It's not possible f for Europe to be divided into the group of countries who are responsible in managing the finances and those who are not necessarily. We need more enforcement of agreed rules. We need more coordination, and we need more information sharing. Because we are members of a, of a prominent club, and every member of the club has the right to know what the others are doing. So the full transparency is a prerequisite, precondition for a, for a success. And of course, as I said at the beginning, we need more confidence from our markets, which will, of course, derive from the actions we are undertaking. And in the wider context, we need more member states, as I said, there is an unfinished business when it comes to the countries of the Western Balkans, but it does not mean that we have to extend the European Union in a way of a, of a gift, of a free ticket, but it should be a, a logical consequence of meeting all the conditions and all the criteria. We need more free trade. 
We have right now on the table a number of proposals for uh, free trade agreements with the United States, with Japan, with India, with Latin American countries, with ASEAN countries, but also with Ukraine or with, with the countries of Eastern Partnership. Europe needs more free trade, and this is also an area where we are not using our potential. We, we need more EU influence and leverage globally, and we need more security. So with all these examples, I'm trying to prove that when we say more, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing. We need more in all the areas where we agree that it's good for us. And as I said, we go for less when we also agree, all of us, that uh, no regulation at the EU level is necessary and needed. And uh, let me stress the, once again the point that uh, the evaluation about what is good and what's not must be done at the level of all the EU member states. Because we have a union of 27, soon to be 28 member states. We don't have European Union, which is based on bilateral arrangements between each of us and Brussels. And I don't see this kind of union being able to survive and being attractive for our citizens. So we, if we want to achieve what we want, we have to discuss it among ourselves first. Then there is a, the famous issue of flexible geometry, and which is also being, or the double-speed Europe, multi-tier Europe. When you ask me about our opinion, we would say this is not the most preferred solution, but it's probably the, the second best option. And it is a reality already. We have Schengen, we have uh, Eurozone, we have opt-outs, several countries, several issues. So this is a reality. We have been able to live with it, so we shall not be questioning it. But it's important that we have a core, core group, a center of gravity, that is trying to set the agenda. It's important that, the, in other words, those who are the least enthusiastic should not dictate the speed for the rest. With this approach, we won't be able to compete globally. Those who decided to stay out of this or that arrangement must not have the right to block those who are in. But those who are in must not depart too far away from those who are out because this should not be seen as, temp as, uh, as an eternal solution. So that means if I'm not able or not willing to join Schengen or Europe, but I might wish to do so in five years' time, I still must have the chance of doing so. That means that core group must not depart too far away and must keep the process inclusive. That's very important here. I already alluded to it a number of times. I want to say it very clearly that we are very much interested in the UK staying in the European Union and being as strong and as visible member of the European Union as it has been by now. European Union uh, needs UK because UK has been advocating for a number of core principles uh, uh, on which the European Union is based. UK has always been pro-market and pro-trade and pro-economy, and therefore uh, this voice is needed for the, for the European Union. But I am equally convinced that it's in UK's interest to stay in the European Union. And I really hope that the process that has started with the Prime Minister's speech and that will continue up until the elections and then until the referendum will produce a number of sound, solid voices in favour or proving that uh, the membership is in favour of the UK. And of course by then 
we also have to make sure that the address, uh, the, the concerns the UK is having with regard to the way uh, EU functions will be addressed. And we are ready to do so, because, as I said, we, we share a number of these concerns. Now, as I said, uh, we must not resign on our role to play, uh, to have a lev leverage and to influence the developments outside of the European Union and particularly in, in our neighborhood. There are countries where European agenda is the dominant agenda. These are the countries of the Western Balkans. And I, I could hardly imagine a number of positive things that is happening there that would be taking place if there was not for the European perspective. I don't think there is a single person in, in this room who would believe that President Nikolic would meet with, with President Yahyaga if it was not for the benefit of his country's European perspective. And that's a great thing. So this is what we, we, what we have to do. We have to set a, a clear rules, and we have to evaluate to what extent these rules have been met or not, and to allow the countries to progress. No political calendars, no personal considerations, conditionality, and when this conditionality is met, then the reward must follow. But then there are also countries which are our neighbors to the east and to the south, Southern Mediterranean, Eastern Partnership. Again, it is in our interest that these countries are as much like us as possible. We are not offering a membership in the European Union to Moldova, <coughs> to Ukraine, but isn't it in our interest that their political system, their judicial system, their legal system, uh, their economic system is as compatible with us as possible? Sure it is. And it will not ha happen by, by itself. So we have to offer incentives. We have to exercise our leverage in these countries. Uh, to, to make this option attractive because it's not, not painless. Uh, Eastern Partnership Program has, no, has not defined the EU membership in the European Union as its end game, but it left this issue open and ambiguous. So what we are saying to our partners is it depends on you. It depends on what you make out of it. We, we are ready to support you, but we are not going to push you into this. So To conclude, I'm watching time. I would make a couple of points. First one is that the European Union is what the member states make out of it. Second, the prerequisite of successful cooperation is the respect for existing rules of the game. Third, as the members of the club, we have to behave responsibly. As I said, everything in Europe is interconnected and our actions influence the others. Four, we, have, we know how important solidarity in Europe is. Uh, Europe is built on solidarity, but solidarity must go hand in hand with responsibility. We shall not ask for solidarity if we have not been responsible towards our own commitments and towards our own partners. Only those who, who are responsible with, with, with their homework can ask for solidarity and for assistance from, from the others. This is how we, how we see it in Slovakia. Point number five, there are no rights without duties. So EU membership is not cherry picking. There are elements of it which we might not like, but they are a result of our consensus, of our common agreement, and we have to respect them. And we can only change them if everybody else is on board again. Point number six, doing your own homework is the axiom. So it's really important, and it goes equally for the current member states as well as for the future member states. 
It's about the substance, it's about the reforms, it's about the work you do. Point number seven is determination. There are difficult and different p periods in the history of different countries, and I like to say that European Union is an organism rather than a mechanism. We also have different concerns and different priorities in different times, but you have to show determination and you have to be focused on, on, on meeting the benchmarks and the result will come. But you cannot play both sides. You cannot be both with and without, pro and contra. No. So you have to show very clearly that you know where your prior priorities lie. And it goes particularly for the countries who aspire to become member states of the European Union. My point number eight says that regional cooperation matters. It has been extremely well proved by the case of the Visegrad 4. And we are encouraging strongly the regional cooperation also for the countries of, of, uh, of the Western Balkans. European Union works as an alliance of uh, interests which are not against each other, but in favor of, of each other. But there is always good to be part of a wider group. And of course, you cannot be a good member of a European community if you have problems to communicate with your partners who are uh, next to you. And my last point is, and I'm absolutely convinced that there is no better alternative than the membership in the European Union today. Uh, and I would quote again my friend Radek Sikorsky who says, if you are not at the table, be sure you are on the menu. So it's much better <laughs> to be at the table. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention. I hope you disagree with many things I said, so it will <laughs> provide us for a very lively discussion. I thank you very much once again. Thank you very much. As a British citizen, I'd like to thank you for the great novelty of a seriously pro-European speech. It's very nice to hear in the current debate. Um, as Mr. Leitchak has very generously offered, and I think is completely sincere in that offer, um, it would we now have some time for some questions, and, and I think you will be happy with really quite open answers to it. So um, any questions from the floor? And I would be really grateful if you would keep your questions to questions rather than lectures. That would be excellent, sir. <laughs> and, and don't throw shoes at me, please. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Foreign Minister, I'd just like to ask... Um, how, as a relatively new member of the Euro, uh, does Slovakia see how the Euro can get out of its current problems? And do you foresee some of your neighbours, like uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary and Poland, eventually applying? Thank you very much. Can I take one or two questions, and then you have a little... Well, maybe. James, and then the lady in front... Thank you very much. James Kellency from the uh, European Institute. Um, Minister, obviously your, your reputation in the Balkans is very well known and uh, you, know, you speak very passionately about enlargement, but we know that there are very serious problems um, in certain member states, particularly Germany, about the prospect of enlargement in the Western Balkans. How would you try and sell the Western Balkans to a sceptical European audience? And that's not to say... It would, you know, the EU would deliver stability to the Balkans. That would be seen as a Balkan benefit. What do the Balkans bring to the rest of Europe? And if I might, just as a very quick subsequent question, you spoke a few days ago 
um, about your concerns about the rise of Albanian nationalism. I know that this is something, for example, the American ambassador in, in Tirana has also raised as a real concern. Um, do you feel that there is a prospect that we haven't quite laid to rest the, the ghosts of nationalism in the Balkans? And why aren't your, your other EU member states um, leaders speaking out a bit more about this? Thank you. Thank you. And one last question for the moment. We'll come back. There was a lady in front of James. Uh, sorry, just there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ruxandra Lupudinson from the University of Copenhagen. Um, you were talking about the neighbors and the use policy towards the neighbors and saying that um, the EU has not closed the door, but still it's up to the neighbors how they interpret um, the policy. But the problem is that um, this strategy has not really worked. Uh, <laughs> so, and even after the upheavals uh, in the neighborhood, uh, the EU has not really changed its policy. Of course, there are some new instruments, um, especially in the area of human rights and democracy, but still it seems that the EU, maybe in a way, it's a little bit confused on what the strategy should be. So the question is, how do you see the future, um, the future of the relationship with the neighbors? First, on the euro, we shall apply the standard rules and instruments that uh, are applied in every single country. Uh, that means the monetary responsibility, f fiscal control, banking control. Uh, it was naive to believe that we can have one, fiscal, one monetary policy and 17 different fiscal policies. It simply doesn't work like this. And second, you do need uh, to have a proper banking supervision. So this is what we are trying to fix now. And, and I do think that we are moving in, in the right direction. How far, how we, deep we go in this direction, uh, this is a very political question. Because uh, don't fix what is not broken. Uh, you have uh, examples of countries like mine, where the, and I, I, with, I'm saying this with all the modesty, where our banking sector has been reformed and it's healthy. And we never had a single problem with a single bank. Uh, it's also because of the prudent and very responsible role played by our national bank. So we would definitely not be in favor of transferring the responsibility from the national level to the European level so that we lose the possibility to influence the situation on our market. So this is about the proper balance. Look at where the problems lie and make sure that, uh, yes, Europe, Europe is ready to intervene when it's needed and necessary, but it's not that we are, we are losing control over something that we have proved that we, c we can be in charge of. Uh, so we are now in December, our leaders have adopted the plan for creating the single supervisor mechanism, and we were among those who were saying, let's focus on substance rather than on time, because, you know, some of the, the members, the French wanted this to become reality in January, while the Germans rather in, in December this year, and we are saying whenever we are ready. We don't have to put it in motion before we are absolutely sure that it's going to, to be properly staffed, properly uh, mandated, and we know that it will work. These issues are too serious. So just apply common sense rules for, for the Europe. Don't rely on goodwill and the responsibility of everyone because uh, we have already seen that we, we cannot take this for granted. In theory, every EU member state should apply or should try to meet the Maastricht criteria and to become a member of the Monetary Union and join the Euro. This is not the case now. And I think it also goes with the attractiveness of Europe and of the ability uh, 
of the countries and their economies to to meet the criteria because sometimes it's like high hanging fruit you you can't reach it so you say you I'm not interested and that's what I suspect is behind a n- n- couple of nationalist positions when it comes to uh, joining the eurozone on uh, the prospects of enlargement the answer is very easy first of all european union is a serious club of serious countries and uh, enlargement has been our official policy since 2003 so uh, we stick to our policies and to our rules particularly when we know that uh, it worked it worked well in the past as i said central europe would not be in the place where we are now if it was not for the prospect of enlargement the things which are happening in the balkans and positive things would not be happening without the enlargement and vice versa if there is no positive enlargement agenda then there is a different agenda which we are not very happy with, with. let me use the example of uh, macedonia the country that has been blocked from progressing on uh, european integration path for four years in the row now and we are saying that we have con- we, or some of our politicians are saying that they have concerns about the uh, political developments obviously if i don't keep you busy with positive agenda you will keep me, me busy in, in, with negative agenda that how, how it works it's either us exporting our standards and our values or we will import somebody else's standards and values and in, in all terms including financial terms the first option is definitely better so we just made the rules too complicated and uh, too politicized and uh, the countries in the western balkans have lost sometimes the confidence in our honesty and sincerity when we speak about enlargement and also they lost themselves in 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 these difficult rules of the enlargement so we should we should go back to the back to basics back to the enlargement has always been about reforms changing your system so that it ma- it becomes compatible with european ways and it's not about rhetorics but it's about the, your homework it's not about lobbying in capital but it's about your homework and european agenda must become a real agenda not a side agenda because in there are several countries in the balkans where they pay all the lip service to the european agenda and they have all the structures but they don't measure every step they take every decision they make by their european aspirations because in ideal case everything you do must be confronted with the question is it going to speed up or slow down my european dream and this is not always and everywhere the case and yes i am not hiding that i was very concerned about the several statements made recently by the prime minister of albania raising the nationalistic and ethnic card and calling for reunification of all albanians living in four countries i think it's extremely dangerous we have seen these sta- statements 20 years ago we have seen what the consequences were and we must not accept it. we must not tolerate this we know that he's saying this not because he thinks it but because he's campaigning but this is a very unfortunate way of campaigning and i really be- believe that we have to stand up and and speak out clearly that we are not going to tolerate this and uh, with the, our policy with regard to our neighbors i cannot agree with your statement that it, it's not working it would be naive to expect that we can change these countries in 2 3 years time i believe that eastern partnership program in particular is a solid good and reasonable program we are offering to these countries 
as much as we can. That means as much as we are able to agree upon. Political association, so short of membership, but, but we don't say never to membership. Economic integration, which is very attractive, opening up our markets to them. And visa liberal, liberalization, which is something, of course, very attractive to their citizens because uh, they all enjoy traveling without visas. And participation in our programs. So, uh, and I, I do agree with the philosophy more for more and less for less. So you, you have countries who are doing a great job, such as Moldova, and they are benefiting greatly, financially, politically. You are countries like Belarus who are unable, unwilling to take part in it, but we are trying not to shut the door before them because it's about the country, it's not about uh, this or that personality. And there are countries who are <coughs> having their fights and their dilemmas, but it's important that they have an offer coming from the European Union and we have to make sure that this offer will remain attractive for them. We have Vilnius Summit November this year, so it's important that we send a strong signal that if they have any, any hesitations, there is a clear offer from the European Union which is interesting and attractive for them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to add one of my own questions into the, into the queue. Um, Minister, if I can ask you a question uh, in your capacity as Deputy Prime Minister. Um, it's been noted by Transparency International uh, that both the Czech Republic and Slovakia have seen quite uh, serious backsliding in terms of government corruption following membership of the European Union. Um, and it's been a notable problem actually in both republics in terms of the use of EU grants. So in fact I'm asking you this with all your uh, hats on, as it were. Um, what, what is your diagnosis of this problem in the Slovak case? I mean, all the research on corruption shows that political will is pretty much the factor that can move uh, countries to uh, more transparent and less corrupt conditions, or indeed towards them. So um, what is your diagnosis of it? And, and more specifically, what would you like to see your own government <coughs> do to tackle and bring to an end this uh, issue? The changes that have been going on in Central Europe for the last 20 years, mm -hmm. of course, have been unprecedented. And as part of these changes, the, there has been a redistribution of the wealth, of the property, of of the assets, and of course this is the situation conducive to uh, corruption, uh, which all our countries have been uh, somehow fighting with, and the temptation has been there. Again, this is, uh, this is not an issue that can be solved with one law or with one act. Mm. It has to be a process that has to have several elements in it. First of, of, of course, the commitment of the government and adoption of, of laws and legislation that will minimize, if not eliminate, any ground for corruption. Second, the strict control by the open society, by, by the media, by the civil society, by the NGOs. So there is full transparency and full accountability. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's obviously difficult to achieve. And third, obviously, the efficient uh, control of the funds done by the European Union, by the European Commission. And I do see a lot of progress here because by now all the responsible actors have learned 
what is acceptable, what is not acceptable by the, by the Commission. So it already eliminates one big set of questions or of temptations. And I, I, I really believe that uh, openness and transparency in this process uh, is, is of crucial importance. I, I, I want to express my hope that uh, we are moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's good that we discuss these issues. Are there particular issues in the Slovak case or particular measures that you'd like to see enacted that you think would make a, a notable difference? Because one of the, one of the features of uh, the region and, of course, corruption is a global problem. There's in no sense is it exceptional to Central Europe. Um, but one of the features is a lot of pronouncements about initiatives. There are a great number of initiatives. Um, but one of the problems is in the kind of deep implementation of those um, so I, I wonder, are there anything, any sort of particular measures that you feel would guarantee the sort of seeing through of these initiatives to their uh, intended end? Well, if you send me this question in written, I'm, I would reply you in ten pages describing all the measures that have been already <laughs> undertaken. But this is not what you have been asked about. In our particular case, uh, the unique situation that we have single-party government Mm. It's already a measure by itself. It is. Because okay. you cannot put the blame on anybody else. Yeah. And you don't have to feed any partners. Mm -hmm. uh, if you <laughs> understand oh, what I, I mean. Understand what you mean. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> sorry for being so honest with you. But, <laughs> no, uh, that's great. <laughs> you know, every piece of legislation, even when at the stage when it's be being discussed, before mm -hmm. it's uh, being so sent to the, to the government and, and later to the parliament, is on the website. Mm -hmm. uh, all those who are entitled to speak about it, they do. All those who are not entitled have the right to do so. So I, I don't think we really have to create a, a, a special device. We have to use all the instruments that are at our disposal, mm -hmm. and we have to be very clear and very open about every time there is a case we have our doubts. But let's face it, uh, this, this, this topic is also part of the political discussion in all these countries. So whatever the government does, mm -hmm. and regardless of who is in the government, is immediately criticized by the opposition, saying that this will lead to greater corruption. Mm -hmm. And if they swap the roles, then the opposition will do exactly the same. So it's also important that we base our assessments or our, our, our statements on facts, mm -hmm. and not only on one party's comments about this or that. And, and it doesn't really matter which party we, we refer to. Michael Roberts. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, one remarkable feature of uh, the accession of Slovakia to the EU in 2004 has been the large numbers of Slovaks who've come to the UK to live, to study, to work. Indeed, um, uh, the UK is now home to one of the largest Slovak communities anywhere in the world. Second largest. Second largest. After the okay. Czech Republic. Um, <laughs> in general terms, the, the British government's decision to open its labour markets to uh, people from the uh, 10 EU exceeding countries in 2004 is now considered, uh, is now quite a controversial uh, topic. Uh, people doubt as to, as to whether or not it was the right thing to not do. Not in Slovakia. <laughs> I wonder what your government's view of this was, um, uh, to see so many Slovaks come to the UK 
And what would you be telling the British government about the merits of, of this phenomenon? Thank you very much. And the gentleman with the beard behind him. Uh, Michael Gavrilovich, I'm a native of Belgrade. Uh, my uh, question uh, relating to what you said about the importance of uh, members of the EU <coughs> holding to their commitments has to be taken into account with commitments made to other bodies, in particular the United Nations and also, I mean all members of the EU are also members of the United Nations and most, like Slovakia, are also members of NATO. Fourteen years ago, the anniversary will come very shortly, 19 NATO members had to choose between their commitments to the Charter of the United Nations and their commitments to the United States and NATO. They chose NATO. They bombed Serbia. They bombed Yugoslavia. They've broken clearly 100% the Charter of the United Nations. They've committed an act of aggression. Of those 19 NATO countries, 14 were members of the EU, and they are the most important countries within the EU. Slovakia, I'm glad to say, was at that time not a member of, uh, of NATO. But if you, were to, if you were given the choice now of breaking the UN Charter or going along with your commitments to NATO, which do you think you would choose, Mr. Lajcik? Thank you very much. And one more question. This uh, lady in this, uh, in this room, do we have a microphone? Uh, yes, if that goes to the end, Gabriel there, and then he can pass it down. Oh, there we go. We've got a civil society version. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, well, I have a couple of points, right? I'm a native Slovakian, been a couple of times in the Slovakian embassy, which has been a bit of shame. Um, yes, we've been uh, suffering discrimination. I've been in England for past 11 years, have studied at Kingston University. Not only we have suffered discrimination in England, that we have taken somebody else's jobs. Right, it's not only about joining a European Union, it's about personal growth. I am glad I've been in England, I've traveled the world, but I do feel like after all this time we've been turned back on. Because after all this experience, yes, we do can come back home. I do have two lovely children, but everybody would, would think, why would you want to go back home? And I say, why would I want to stay in England? <laughs> well, <laughs> I did study international business, right? But what am I going to do with it? We need to get integra integrated into market. I do have connections in Slovakia. I do understand without connection, nothing is possible. We, we are nearly closed up in a bubble here in England because we're fighting for survival so much. Right, being blamed for taking taking public benefits and stuff like that. And, and would you like to formulate an exact question? Because that's a, um, no, no, no. It's a very it's a very valid and important Sorry. statement. But uh, but a question as well would be would be excellent. Thank you. Yes, I do. Would like to see the initiative not only for the past eleven years that Slovakia suffered brain drain, but there's got to be an in initiative where. Slovakian government would want us to go back home with all our experience from abroad mm -hmm. and to, to tackle this kind of issue that we would have a confidence to go back home and, yeah. and grow. So it, it, so it is about social mobility yeah. within Slovakia yeah, sure. and, yeah. and that's, that's and it, very interesting. Thank it, you. it relates to yeah. the first question exactly. of Ambassador yeah. Robert. Well, European Union is built on four freedoms uh, and this is one of them. And we 
greatly appreciated then, and we still appreciate the fact that the UK was one of the three EU member states who opened the labor market immediately after we joined the European Union. <coughs> As a result, there is a second largest, as I said, Slovak community here, some 200,000 people. Uh, Now, I don't want to comment the public discussions here, I, but I, I want to express uh, m my conviction that Slovaks are not the troublemakers here in this country. Uh, we are suffering from the brain drain, yes, but what are we going to do about it? Are, are we going to erect any artificial administrative barriers? No. What we want to do is, of course, to make our country successful and attractive enough for them to come back home. And many of them did come home as a, as a consequence of the crisis when they lost their jobs elsewhere in Europe. They, they came back home. Uh, obviously, again, this is a free wor world. No one is going to keep your uh, job for you, uh, waiting for you to decide. I mean, it's your personal choice. You take the risk. It might work. It might not work. Slovakia is your home country. You are always welcome to come home. Uh, and you have to think about what's best for you. And while you are here, we want you to be responsible citizens of the United Kingdom, but as long as you keep your Slovakian passports, you can turn to us uh, when you are in trouble. You may dislike uh, what we do for you, but I can assure you that we do our best and our utmost, and we have really strengthened the consul department of, of this embassy here because it's a, a serious job, and I'm not going to say what everything we do for the Slovaks living here, but yeah, we do care about Slovaks living here, but uh, as I said, it was your choice, and it, it would be great for us if you are able to and willing to come back home and to bring the experience, because this is what we need. We need more openness. We need more people who have seen the world, who have, who have been to places, and who can say, no, we shouldn't do this this way, but we should do it, do it that way. I can hardly imagine European Union functioning when we are imposing limits on the basic freedoms of the European Union. What we have to do, of course, is to make sure that uh, the countries, by the time when they join the European Union, are at the level of, of being part of the European Union and not to, to be a problem for the European Union in any aspect. And again, I, I, I am more than sure that this has not been the case for, for Slovakia. So uh, now the issue of mobility is not the most sexy issue for politicians. And uh, as attractive as it is for the future member countries, as is equally unattractive for, for the current countries. But we should break this vicious circle somehow. I mean, do we believe in Europe and for freedoms, or, or we don't? And I mentioned cherry picking, so we, we, we must not be picking cherries also in this area. But we definitely don't want to lose our citizens uh, because we need them. And the issue about the NATO, As a, of course this is a very very serious and very difficult issue. And as I said in my presentation, NATO, EU, even the UN, are international organizations or alliances made of states and they make decisions which are based on the evaluation and analysis of the situation at a given moment. And you see a number of international players acting differently in two cases which seem similar, 
but they came a couple of years after one uh, after each other. So the decision it will not help us to comment upon it now. It was the decision which was adopted because the NATO member states believed that this is a right thing to do, and there were reasons and there was prehistory to the bombing, and we we both know what, we, what I'm referring to. It was a, also a very gross miscommunication with the international community and misinterpretation of the international community's, com, com, uh, community's intentions by the side of then Yugoslav leadership that was part of this tragic uh, moments because th these, are, these were not moments of pride, but these are moments of history. Slovakia was not a member of NATO at that time, but we made a political decision to open up our airspace for NATO aircraft. It was not easy knowing how strongly we feel about the region, about Serbia, about the Slovak community living there. But we ought to believe that this was the right thing to do. So it's uh, one thing when you make a decision now, it's a different thing when you look back and said, if I knew all I know now, I would have decided differently, but that's what life is about. What's important is that we are able to learn from what we have done right and wrong in the past. So if we have done something wrong, then we don't repeat it. Happy to take two more sure. very quickly. Uh, two last questions. Uh, Simon, at the back. Oh. Thank you. It looks like 12 from, <laughs> from here, at least. Simon, Simon Latham, uh, LSE student. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, it won't have escaped your notice uh, during your visit to London that in addition to the referendum on uh, British membership of the European Union, there's also going to be a referendum on Scottish independence uh, before the next general election. Um, and I was wondering, given your country's experience during the so-called uh, Velvet Divorce, whether you might be able to give some advice to those English people who think of Scottish independence as a terrible development. Thank you very much. And this lady here, I'm going for our students to round up the last, uh, last questions. Yes, please. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Michelle. I'm a law student from King's College London, as well as a Slovak national. Uh, my question is, um, given the current, current climate, and you actually outlined uh, many of the things we are going through, the banking union and fiscal union, and given the current climate, um, we are sort of moving into this sort of, we've been there, but it's mostly, I see the European Union moving towards more technocracy. And as you said, um, um, as you said in your speech, that you know um, it is doing a lousy job of communicating this to the democracy. How can we actually sort of uh, make sure that it's actually you know delivered to to the people so they understand what the European Union is about? Because personally, I I I'm, I have nothing against doing it. The you know the any uh, any merry um, slaughter approach, but I think the European Union is now sort of. Um, delivered to the people um, in stereotypes at what it does, and uh, many people don't actually know every single thing the European Union is doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. First, uh, no, we are not selling our know-how. We believe that... Uh, I, we, I, I will disappoint you. We, I, I think it would be highly counterproductive if we were traveling around the world and offering uh, countries uh, how to... How to secede. How to secede. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we have not seceded. No, 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 we've been yeah. partitioned, that would be my argument, but that's yes, a whole other debate. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's my understanding that you ask this question from an England's perspective rather than from the Scottish perspective. So therefore, I'm not saying flatly no, but I would say listen to your partners, ask them what makes them feeling uncomfortable. Don't try to answer for them. Don't tell them what's better for them. You might believe in that, but uh, everybody should know what's best for him. So uh, my personal experience from my own country, but also from former Yugoslavia, from the Soviet Union, was it? I mean, our case was good and friendly and, and has been so, and we are very happy. But in the other cases, part of the problem was that someone, somebody else wanted to tell you what's better for you. And uh, so uh, communication, communication, communication. And it's not only because I'm a diplomat, but I really believe in <laughs> it. It actually works. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, more technocratic European Union would be a disaster. We need more civilized, more normal European Union. So uh, those who have democratic credentials, those who have been elected, those should make the political decisions. And the technical apparatus should do the technical work for them, and not vice versa. We should not be attacked by new initiatives coming from the Commission, and, and we must not find ourselves in a position to defend or to fight against it. So this is something, I mean, not right if this is the case. Uh, because the political leaders have the political responsibility, and they know how far they can go, and they, they know how to explain this to their people. So again, use more of common sense, and it al always helps. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we must round it up there. And my apologies to those who wanted to ask questions, but we ran out of time. And thank you very much indeed for coming to this evening. And if you join me thanking the Minister. For thank you.